0: How are you?
1: Hi, how are you? Please call me Andy.
0: (laughs) Oh, and you can call me Andy, too.
1: (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) Well, it is so wonderful. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with us. We really appreciate this.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I've been looking forward to this, too. Um, You know, Melissa, I saw you uh, interview with uh, Mike and Bear at Alpha Vedic. And I mean, I think I've seen you before that as well, but I, uh, I thought I would eventually reach out to you. So I'm glad Andy set this up we to have this kind of a panel discussion. It's really exciting.
2: Me too. I'm super excited to meet you. I've been following you since the beginning of this. And you know, I've shared your videos so many times to just help people to see things from a new perspective. So I'm really excited to connect with you too. Wow.
1: Thank you so much. We
2: always try to
0: latch on to the physicians who are see looking at, at things from outside the box, because that's closer to German New Medicine. So it's like, yes, yes, we've all been following you.
1: Well, you know, German New Medicine has kind of a unique meaning for me, too, because my background is really in psychiatry. So I'm really curious to learn more about it.
0: Yes, yes. Um, and we would love to teach you about it. <laughs> Absolutely. What would be your goal for today, Andy?
1: <laughs> well, really for me, it's about education and, uh, and then, you know, sharing this perspective with my audience, you know, I featured a number of different people with different, uh, kind of perspectives and, uh, you know, all with uh, value. And so I want to, you know, keep bringing that out and then I want to get more experience myself with things. So I know what works for what, and, uh, you know, get that information.
0: Let me jump in here then. I'd like to introduce all of our listeners to Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And if you've been following anything on the coronavirus, you've probably heard his name pop up. So we're so thrilled to be able to have him with us today. He has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. He graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina, and he completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center. He's conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised and mentored medical students, residents and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He's qualified as an expert witness in local, state and federal courts. And he's held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. He's even run a startup company which developed a medical device that you invented and patented. I'd love to ask you about that. Andy, what, was the, what did you invent?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, it's uh, actually turned out it was a little bit controversial, uh, because it was related to suicide. But Mm -hmm. I was uh, practicing forensic psychiatry. And uh, I came to learn, I I mean, I, I became an expert on suicide in general, but I came to learn that in jails, especially, but also even in hospitals, even on general medical floors, like people who would be admitted for a pneumonia or a heart attack, that there are a significant number of suicides that take place um, in those settings. And they rely on you know, mental health professionals to try to make judgments. And then they have these really intrusive procedures where somebody will like, follow you around, even into the bathroom to make sure that you don't kill yourself. And in jails, they even take away your clothing and uh, don't allow you to come out and socialize or watch TV or even sometimes have a toothbrush or a book to read. And so basically, I came up with an idea with a partner who is a mentor, James Knoll, about monitoring vital signs or, or like physiologic parameters to see if they could tell us about suicide. And it turns out that when people in an institutional setting like a jail or, or a hospital carry out a suicide, they almost always do it by strangulation, like they hang themselves. And so basically what the idea was is to use the technology that's from a pulse oximeter to measure the pulse waves above the neck. So there would be like a little patch behind the ear that would monitor the pulse Mm -hmm. waves. And if someone strangled themselves, the pulse wave would drop off and then it would sound an alarm and someone would come to uh, rescue them. Wow. And so, yeah, so kind of an interesting system. It was meant to like make it easier for people with suicide risk to kind of go about their business and then to kind of make it more foolproof that they would be able to interrupt a suicide attempt very rapidly, you know, if it did occur. And so it was, a, you know, very difficult though, to talk to business people about that, because as soon as you mentioned this, the word suicide, it makes people very uncomfortable um, to talk about. So it was really difficult to uh, get going, but I learned a lot from that about how uh, business works, you know, in in the United States. Which is that basically, if you're trying to introduce new technology, there's so many things against you. And um, I think mo- the best thing you could do, really, is probably sell the technology and let one of the big companies make most of the money and uh, you know give you give you enough to say goodbye to it. But it's amazing, like even like. I got this uh, grant from New York State, right? So the government gives you a grant to develop your business and then then they tax you on it, like they take back oh man for <laughs> the money. so it's like uh, you know how does that help?
0: Right <laughs> right, exactly. It sounds kind of typical, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> unfortunately. Exactly. Well, that is fascinating. And we are so thrilled to have you today. Let's jump into any questions. If you have any questions for us right off the bat, we'd love to answer them. We have a few for you as well.
1: Well, I think, you know, my audience would really appreciate if you, you know, either of you could sort of just give an overview of the the basic theory of German new medicine as like a starting point. And then I definitely have some more pointed questions to get at the nitty-gritty. And you know, and then I thought another thing that would really be nice is to just kind of like maybe discuss. It could be even be hypothetical, but like a case, like how you would identify the particular conflict shock and and how you would design a therapeutic plan uh, with that person to to address it.
0: That's a fabulous question. So let's start with, what is German new medicine,
2: Melissa? Do you want to start that conversation? Sure, definitely. I. Uh-huh love sharing this because it really rocked my world when I discovered it a few years ago. And uh, Dr. Homer's work, it is, you know, in the, why do people get sick? Why do we develop what we call sickness and what is the the mechanism behind it? And Dr. Homer discovered that it is an intentional adaptation that the body is going through a biological special program in response to a shocking trauma something that was isolating, something that caught the individual off guard in a moment and their body stepped in with a biological program with tissue adaptations. And the whole purpose is to help the organism, the individual to survive that stressful situation. And so Dr. Hammer, he mapped out the entire human body. He looked at the embryology. He looked at you know the, the germ layers and the tissues from which are um, certain symptoms are derived. So the you know the surface of the skin is different from the inside of the bronchial tube, which is different from the glandular tissue. And so each of these tissues behave differently in a shocking situation. And so really, when you look at a, at a person who has is expressing some type of sickness symptom, you can trace it back to a conflict shock to something traumatic that caught the individual off guard, the body went through a specific adaptation process. And through that process, tissues were either eroded or the tissues were proliferated. So there's either more tissue or less tissue, whichever is more advantageous for the organism in that moment. And then once the conflict is resolved, once um, safety has been secured and the organism, the individual has been relieved of this stress, their body sets about restoring the tissue or breaking down the tissue that was built up during the conflict. And so it's an amazing, very different way of looking at why the body develops um, sickness symptoms. And there's a whole, there's five biological laws and it's extremely detailed and very nuanced. And uh, so it's different. A lot of people will hear about GNM and they'll automatically assume, oh, well, yeah, stress, stress induces sickness. (laughs) Right. Stress causes disease and the um, it's in the details, it's in the nuances, it's in the deep science that Dr. Homer mapped out that lies the, the very unique differences between this and other um, even holistic models of understanding how the body works. So that's a very, very small summary.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's really helpful. And so maybe you could provide, either of you could provide some like illustration, like, so how could... Right tissue, um, either destruction or proliferation, actually help you to deal with some kind of uh, conflict. That's so a great, one, great question. Yeah, which Let,
0: one you want to go with, Andy? <laughs> yeah, let's let's. I want to start with Doctor Hammer's story as well because that will illustrate what you just asked, Andy.
1: Oh, fantastic!
0: So, Doctor Hammer was a he's a traditionally trained physician, and this was in uh, 1978, and it was. He was in his early forties and he's a strong, healthy man, robust. And he received a shocking phone call that his teenage son had been accidentally shot while on vacation. Well, no parent wants to hear that for sure. So he and his wife went to his son's, their son's side and four months later, their son died in his arms. So he, they experienced a huge loss so there's a conflict shock right there, but that was a huge loss. And this is actually the, what started his journey. So a few months later, he ed- ended up being diagnosed with testicular cancer. And he's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, I've always been so healthy and now I have this huge trauma and now I have cancer. There's got to be a correlation, but he's not going to mind, body, spirit, like you and I might, that's not in his makeup. He's looking at what's going on in my body and he took that new invention called the CT scan and he started looking at what was going on in people's CT scans. He was looking for a cause of disease in the brain. This had never occurred before. He, at this point, was working at the University of Munich in their cancer area, their oncology area. He was an internist. He was not an oncologist. And he he took everyone's CT scan and he started looking at them and comparing them. And then he started talking to all of the people in all of his patients. And he realized that they all had a story to tell. What he was noticing in their CT scans was that they had circles, like targeted bullseyes. It's like, what is this? He had one as well. What was that? He wanted to find out. Nobody could give him a very good clear explanation of what that was. Even the CT scan company couldn't really identify it. And this was
1: something that the the, uh, radiologists would basically just ignore.
0: Exactly. It was not picked up by radiologists. It was not considered relevant by allopathic or modern medicine. But he thought, well, there's something here. It's in all of our brains. What is that? So he started talking with these patients and he started to hear their stories and he realized they'd all had some sort of trauma prior to their diagnosis and then he started realizing that everyone all of the men with testicular cancer had all experienced a profound loss conflict prior to their diagnosis ding 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 the bells went off he had as well he started to group the kinds of traumas people had had Together, And he realized that everyone who had the circle in the same area in the brain had all experienced the same trauma. Looking further, he realized they all had the same diagnosis of cancer. This was the beginning. He established that all diseases from the common cold, to warts, to a heart attack, to cancers, to anything that occurs in the body basically begins with a some sort of trauma or what he called a conflict shock. What he realized is, and that's the first biological law, like Melissa said, there are five of them. And he realized that at that moment of that conflict shock, our psyche, which is our innate intelligence, he described it as our five senses and our nervous system and our brain that's our psyche. It's different than the Freudian definition. Mm -hmm. He he said that our, our, our biological psyche is hardwired for survival and we are all hardwired the same way. Animals are hardwired the same way as well. At that moment of the conflict shock, our psyche determines, all right, Is this a safety issue, are are we gonna survive this? We may not, this might be so big, we may not survive it. We need to adapt, we need to provide adaptation like Melissa said. We create cell loss or cell growth or functional loss somewhere in the body. That where in the body is all determined by our perception of the event. So if you have 10 people in a bank robbery and they all experience a conflict shock, they might all experience a different conflict shock because they perceive it differently. Mm -hmm. So their perception starts the program that begins with that circle that impacts immediately with that conflict shock. A program begins cell loss, cell proliferation or functional loss. We are now in the second, the first phase which is called being conflict active, we're upset. Now we may not, we're we not gonna be aware of this cell growth or cell loss or functional loss that's below our level of consciousness. We don't wake up the next day and say, oh, I think I just lost some cells in my liver or grew some cells in my liver. We don't say that, we don't know that. But what we know is that we're upset and that's a clue right there that you are conflict active. You might be conflict active for five minutes. You might be conflict active for five years, 10 years. 20 years, you know, hopefully not long. Hopefully you're able to resolve the issues that occur in your life. And when you do, your nervous system then switches from being sympathetic dominant when you're conflict active to being parasympathetic dominant when you're in the second phase, which is known as the post-conflict phase.
1: Right. So basically you're in sort of survival mode during the conflict phase and then you're in, you know, thriving mode the parasympathetic mode, uh, when you're not in conflict,
0: right? So it immediately switches and now your body works to restore homeostasis. If you grew cells during the conflict active period, now you're going to break them down. There will be pain, swelling, and inflammation with that. That's normal. There might be a bloody discharge as well. It's getting rid of the remnants. That's normal. We expect that.
1: So could you make this uh, type of inference with respect to Dr. Hamer's relationship between the shock and the proliferation that, um, so perhaps he experienced a loss, uh, which was related to danger, right? Because his son was also shot. So in order to prepare himself to protect against further loss, if his testicle made more testosterone, he could build up more muscle and then be better prepared to, to uh, protect himself. Like, is that sort of the logic that you could uh, draw from it?
0: Basically, yes. Um, think, of, think of lungs. So lungs are big right now, right? And so the lung alveoli program is cell increase. So we're growing more cells in our lungs. The reason we do that with a death fright conflict is so that we have more oxygen in order to, to live. Because if we've had a death fright conflict, our body says, uh-oh, we need air. We need to breathe so that we can survive. We grow more cells in our lungs and that will help us process more oxygen. So that's how we adapt in that moment to that conflict. Right.
1: Now, when the tissue growth turns into cancer, does that mean that there is a, a mistake in the program or like what, uh, what brings about that situation?
0: That's a great question. And um, so we use different terminology here. That was, that would be a program. Um, Cancer is a program. So that cell growth in the conflict active phase could be detected because if, if a mass got large enough you could feel it, you could palpate it. And if a biopsy was taken at that time, they would say, oh, it's benign, don't worry about it, it's fine. Once you transfer into the parasympathetic, the healing phase, the post-conflict phase, now there is metabolic activity because now we're going to break those cells down. If a biopsy is done at that time, it is now called malignant.
1: I see. So you're saying that that's actually the healing phase.
0: That is correct. That is the post-conflict phase, what we call the healing phase.
1: Yes what about when people uh, die related to malignant uh, growths?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the, the body can only take so much at some point. Now, if they're putting poison in their body, if they're burning it, then their body is weaker. And so their chances of survival could be less because of those reasons. And again, the body can only take so much. If you have many programs running that are in vital organs, you may not make it. We often experience a conflict shock at the moment of a diagnosis.
1: So it seems like this could really be relevant to the current state of people's health, Uh, you know, especially since the pandemic announcement when there's been a lot of increased fear and other types of conflicts.
0: Correct, yes. (laughs) There There are some very specific programs that are running now in people all over the world. And those of us who know GNM,
1: we can see it in our countries. It seems like this is even something that could really be exploited, um, you know, through propaganda or psychological operations. Um,
0: Bingo. And it kind of makes you wonder if the folks that are, that created this pandemic
1: know German
0: new medicine. They knew exactly what to do.
1: Right, well, I mean, even uh, allopathic medicine acknowledges that uh, when you're under high stress, like a, you know, a fear or a survival situation, right? That at it, at the minimum, they say it weakens your immune system. I know we have a different conceptualization of the immune system and probably would prefer not even to use that word, but, right. but just to draw comparisons to say that, you know, what we're talking about here is not really revolutionary. Um, it's really an extension of principles that we're already familiar with and are widely accepted, but taking them more to the logical conclusion. And, and I, you know, it's the same thing that I talk about with terrain theory, because, you know, we have here people readily accept the importance of our our microbiome, at least in our gut, right? And right. so if you just take that, you know, to its logical conclusion, then you basically have uh, terrain theory, right? Which I, I think is somewhat compatible with what you're talking about. Do, do you think so, or are there main differences uh, between, between those two theories or, you know, just something like the pleomorphic cycle, does that fit in with the, the biological programs you're talking about?
2: I think it certainly does um, yeah. fit in with the biological programs. There is just more nuance to when and why do symptoms develop at a particular time. So like the pleomorphic cycle and understanding like the role of bacteria Dr. Hummer discovered that during the healing phase, during this reconstruction phase, following a conflict shock where there was tissue adaptation, the bacteria, the fungus, they are serving a functional role. They are helping to decompose those additional cells that built up during the conflict phase. And so they are endemic to the body. They are in the body. They're they're not something that you, you catch from the outside. They're something that you manufacture and your body will proliferate or help to um, increase the, like for the example of the lung cancer. So if you have a death fright conflict, you have a proliferation of alveoli cells, the body is building up tuberculosis within the lungs because tubercular bacteria, it is a functional tool. Right. It is a servant of the body. And so the body has to be able to make it. And so the pleomorphic cycle makes perfect sense that these cells can morph from bacteria into fungus, whatever is necessary and needed by the body at the moment of the resolution. Because if you don't have those bacteria or if they've been wiped out due to antibiotic use, um, other chemicals that destroy the, the microbiome, your body doesn't have the proper bacteria, therefore you'll encapsulate the tumor. And so if we have people who, you know, have scans years later and like, oh, there's a encapsulated tumor, it's because at the moment that that conflict resolved, the proper bacteria wasn't available. And so the decomposition couldn't take place.
1: Right. In that acute phase, you're talking about when the bacteria are present, is that also the symptomatic phase?
2: Yes, that is the symptomatic phase. See, this is that.
1: So this, you know, it's like I've I've basically been saying this right uh, all along, and not realizing I was uh, actually incorporating the GNM. That's uh, right. (laughs) Right. I I suspected it might be the case. Yeah. So it's good to formally acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. That along
2: with. The exosomes and the virus, because, you know, that is Dr. Hammer, you know, his he always said that if viruses exist because, you know, the proof of the virus existing in the way that, you know, conventionally people think that it does. It doesn't really but if it's there it is there serving a functional role which is why you know when you your video of like this is an exosome they're identical it actually is serving a functional role in communication or cleanup Um, and i'd love to hear a little more about you know like the all the kind of different bullet points of what does an exosome really do what is this thing being called a virus and it makes perfect sense that it is there as a part of this reconstruction process specifically in the ectodermal tissues
1: right Right. So, well, let me uh, just clarify for uh, the audience uh, about what you mean by ectodermal, because you mentioned it before, the germ cell layers. So, you know, when we're an egg that gets fertilized, right, we uh, develop into this structure. And at some point, it's like a ball of cells. It separates into three layers and those are called the germ cells and you know this is a another language point right because this is the real meaning of germ which is new growth new life um, not something dangerous that invades us but these germ cell layers form all the tissues in your body the endoderm the mesoderm and the ectoderm right and so there's lots of charts you could find and say that your skin comes from the ectoderm Right, So the path of the illness or the biological program that you're talking about, I think, and please correct me, that um, it basically would go along a specific germ cell line. So a certain conflict reser- results in a certain brain lesion, and that affects a certain germ layer. It could affect different parts of the body, but they'll all be from that germ layer. <laughs>
0: Correct, absolutely, and it was really (laughs) embryologists who confirmed his work because he he was able to take that work of embryology and what I have behind me is, and behind Melissa is the chart. These are the endoderm programs, mesoderm and ectoderm programs. And we know that these have cell growth in the conflict active phase, and then they have cell breakdown in the post-conflict phase. These have cell loss in the conflict active phase and so replenishment in the post-conflict phase so he was able to break it down so that it was extremely exact
1: wow so it's basically really uncovering the the biological code right that uh, a certain thing produces a certain result and yes. and it fits also with the hermetic law of cause and effect very nicely which right. also plays out in other areas of natural healing <sighs>
0: He, yeah, he realized that what he discovered was a hundred percent accurate for a hundred percent of the time. Nothing does that. Not, there's nowhere you can say that in modern medicine, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, uh, yeah. You can show much, much lower effects and uh, get things approved by regulatory agencies. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, there's nothing, uh, nothing that has a hundred percent of anything in medicine uh, the way that they teach it in medical school. Yeah. I'll be happy to talk more about exosomes, but there's one area that you alluded to a little bit that I just want to know how it's accounted for in terms of disease, which is exposure to toxicity. Because, you know, in my consultations and in my research, there are so many people who have been, you know, cured or healed from serious illness just really by getting those toxins out of their body. So I just wanted to see. Now, I know from you know, my experience, whenever I've talked to clients, that there's almost always a detectable emotional component there of some kind. Usually it's based on a past trauma of some sort, and it probably could fit neatly into the conflict shock categories if I applied that to it. But it seems like sometimes those things could have been very far in the past and maybe set in uh, motion a pattern of behavior that brought about the toxicity or it it doesn't always necessarily have a direct cause that I can perceive. So, so, you know, how would you account for sort of the role of toxicity? And, and, you know, if we, if we were living a natural life, like before the industrial revolution, we wouldn't be having that conversation, right? Because most of the toxins that I'm talking about that, that bring about illness are not naturally in our environment, right? They're either purposely put in our body under false pretenses, like vaccines, or they're from our food or in other environmental exposures, you know, like air and, and water and such?
2: This is a great question. and exposure to toxicity does not happen in a vacuum. Like you said, like when a person is exposed to something, and I think the the biggest thing to point to the conflict involvement is the, the disparity in how people respond to toxic exposure. So even like a whole town that's, you know, poisoned because of Teflon or whatever, like people are developing different types of cancers. It's not all the same type of cancer. And so we have to look at how the toxicity is like depleting a person's vital reserves, depleting their body in general, weakening them, making them more susceptible to things like conflict shocks. And so obviously like toxins in and of themselves can be damaging to the body. That's absolutely true. And I think that the future of medicine is going to be in evaluating brain scans and really determining is this um, symptom expression Simply the detoxification, the body trying to rid itself of this toxin, or is it a biological program or some combination of the two? And so I think that there is, um, you have to take the entire ecology of the organism of the individual into account when you're trying to figure out, was it just the mold exposure? Because everybody in the house was exposed to mo- exposed to the mold, but only two people in the family developed symptoms and those symptoms were extremely different. And so that's where I, I take an approach where I look at everything is like, yeah, let's clean up your environment. Let's not continue the toxic assault. Let's get the stuff out. Let's get back to nature, but let's also address you know the psychobiological conflicts and how are you reacting a big thing for myself personally because i kind of come from the model of of terrain and toxins I created so many conflicts for myself after learning more about toxins. So I would have, I would create a stink conflict. Anytime I smelled an artificial fragrance where before (laughs) I'd smell them and I was like, Oh, that smells good. But it became something that I convinced myself, Oh, I'm allergic to it because it's poisonous for me. Or this, I created a conflict about adulterated oils. I was like, Oh, these, these toxic seed oils, when I eat them, it causes acne. And it wasn't that I created a feeling soiled conflict after educating myself about toxic oils. And I thought, Oh no, it's, it's inflammatory. It's causing the digestive issue or the acne. And so you have to kind of peel away the difference between, you know, the actual substance is this ideal. Do I want this in my body versus what's my story that I'm like (laughs) layering on top of this, creating conflict within myself. So I take a, you know, look at all of it, remove the toxins, but definitely address the, the conflict components
1: wow that that's really fascinating because uh, I just realized that I could be causing some harm <laughs> sometimes when i'm uh, when I'm talking about various toxic foods and such so so essentially you're kind of talking about uh, some form of diathesis model right where you have uh, a vulnerability and and it could be you know in either direction right you could as a result of a conflict shock be more vulnerable to the toxic effects of uh, substances right or Vice versa, as a result of toxicity, be more vulnerable to a psychological uh, conflict shock. Right. Um, exactly. Experience right, and then you could have both of those also simultaneously, and they could, in fact, be intimately related. Right, and and right. then they feed off each other. So you really need to, you know, address as I've always said, the whole person.
0: You <laughs> do, and I always tell my students when they ask me that, oh, you know, I, I'm drinking from a a plastic water bottle, I'm going to have breast cancer. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. Does everyone who drinks from a plastic water bottle have breast cancer? No. Then it might be a contributing factor, but it is not a cause. It does not mean causation. So I always look at that hundred percent rule. Well, if hundred percent of the people who eat tuna fish have that kind of cancer, then is it always going to be from toxicity or is it, really from a conflict shock. Yes, the toxins will weaken our body and make us more susceptible to conflict shocks. That's the key.
1: Right, I mean, even if we took like the most toxic substance that's non-radioactive, right, which is mercury and gave a hundred people a particular dose, you'd have a variety of reactions, right? And some people would be totally fine and provide it wasn't crazy high. Right, exactly. And other people would be severely ill, right? So, So this is a way that could, explain all individual differences really in response to various environmental stimuli.
0: Yes. Yes. There is a point at which something like that is going to be poisonous for everyone. And at that point, beyond, below that though, we have to consider biological shocks. I love what you said,
2: Andy, is the, the individualized nature of Germanic new medicine. That's the thing that I love so much is it really does help us to make sense out of the disparities. Like why isn't it every person that develops this type of issue? And you know, it helps to explain for me, what was so mystifying was living in the world of health promotion and organic food and detox and all of that, that there would still be people who would develop diseases. And I, it like, it would shake me to my when this happened because I'm like, I'm teaching people like here's a person who's like a pillar of this type of lifestyle. And they developed cancer and it was it was like do I even know what I'm talking about do I are these health promoting things that I'm teaching people really going to prevent cancer but with this knowledge it's like oh well you you can't and you don't want to prevent cancer because it's a biological adaptation that is deliberate and intentional in response to an experience an individual had and so it's not something that you want to prevent that the healthiest person who has the best diet who lives in the most pristine place possible um who's you know of taking in the, the cleanest water and the cleanest air, they still, if they suffer a conflict shock and their biology is taken off guard, they will develop tissue prol- proliferation, tissue loss, functional loss. And that is totally normal. And that for me, oh, just frees me from this idea that I can prevent this if I just am good enough.
0: Right. Exactly. We all know or have Uncle Bob, who's, you know, 86 years old, who smokes, you know, cigars every day, drinks whiskey every day, lives on white bread and spam and is going spry, doing fine with no symptoms. Okay, that person should be dead, right? And they're not.
1: My Uncle Harry. Yeah. He was a merchant marine, yeah. right? So he basically was a sailor. He smoked the filterless camel cigarettes, you know, like all chain smoked all day long. <laughs> and, um, you know, he outlived everyone. He even after he retired at like 75, he got married, outlived his wife, lived till his mid 90s. Yeah, there you
0: go. I mean, what how did he explain that? Yeah. Yeah. And then we look at somebody who's, you know, a woman who's 40 years old, who does yoga and eats organic and has a loving, supportive family and does all the right things and exercises and she has breast cancer
1: right. or something else. It's
0: like a fibromyalgia. How does that happen? Well, with German new medicine, we know exactly why that happens.
1: Well, this is a really opening because um, I just, all of these stories of various patients or clients from the past are just kind of going through my head. And I'm like, oh, that's why it worked out. (laughs) that way."
0: Okay. So I want to share another little tidbit with you, Andy, and that is that once Dr. Homer mapped out the entire brain, like Melissa said, and we figured out the conflict shock for all the diseases out there, he then turned his attention to the world of psychiatry. And he started to put it together on what is going on when people are paranoid, schizophrenic, when they're uh, whatever label you want to give them. And he discovered that they also are following the five biological laws. And those are also conflict shocks. So what happens, what he discovered is that when we have a conflict shock in one hemisphere in the brain, and we're conflict active, and then we have a specific kind of other conflict, at the same time, it will switch to the other hemisphere. So now our brain hemispheres are vibrating at different frequencies, and that produces a compulsion, a behavioral change. They're now depressed. They're now manic. They're now narcissistic. They're now um, what we'd call a Casanova he discovered all of these. There's about 25 different combinations that explain what we call mental illness, mood disorders, and behavioral issues. Hmm. So it's another whole level to this that is absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, I definitely would like to learn more about that. But I I was wondering if you could uh, take me up on my earlier request of just sort of like, you know, think about a hypothetical patient or a patient that you can talk about that like how did you actually like you know describe maybe what the conflict shock was and then how did how did the person actually successfully resolve it or what what type of tools do you have in your arsenal to to address or help resolve these things
0: melissa do you want to do Start sure. Down.
2: I think yeah. I think a great example right now would be uh, the isolation, abandonment, refugee existence type of conflict. So this is one of the just most amazing biological programs Dr. Hummer discovered, and it has to do with the kidney collecting tubules. And so when an individual is feeling isolated, when they're feeling like the black sheep of their family, when they're feeling like no one understands them, when they're feeling like I'm the only one who is awake and alive and everybody else is covered and you know, they're masked and they're afraid and they're in their house. I'm like,
1: I can, I can really relate. Melissa.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think most people can. <laughs> I think that that's a big one right now and they're feeling so isolated. And so at a biological level and another thing that's so cool about, Uh, this, this work is looking at at this ontogenetic, like how it all started. So the looking at the, uh, the brainstem being the oldest portion of the brain. And so it's like they got the most ancient biological programs are from these this endodermal tissue controlled from the old brain and so the when you think about the biological uh, correlation it is feeling like a fish out of water so you know back when organisms were just water dwelling if you were washed up on the land that's like 911 <laughs> emergency you're going to die you are isolated you are a fish out of water and so the biological program to help you survive until you know the tide comes back in is to close off the kidney collecting tubules and hold on to water. And so our modern equivalent of that is feeling isolated, fish out of water, afraid for our lives, feeling rejected, nowhere to go. I can't go back home, I'm quarantined. I'm afraid. And then the body, your bio- biology is getting the message, ooh, 911, fish out of water close down the kidney collecting tubules. And so if a person has been home, isolated, not able to go to their job, afraid for their existence, afraid of, for their ability to pay their bills and take care of their children and they're home, and they think, oh, I've just been snacking too much and I'm gaining weight. It's not weight that they're gaining necessarily, it's water. And so if a person is like putting on weight and just, you know, they're, they're not peeing as frequently, it's like they, this person is active with a kidney collecting tubule biological program and they're in the active phase. So what is it going to take for this person to bust out of this conflict, to feel the sense of I'm okay, I'm connected, I'm going to be okay, everything's gonna work out for me. Uh, for me and my work, that's really what I do with people is coach them through Different ways because it's not going to be the same for every everyone. Just like the conflicts aren't the same for everyone, the resolution is not going to be the same for everyone. So it's an experimentation process. I I have personal kind of toolbox that I bring in and I say, try this, try this. Think about it this way. Sometimes we, you know, very practical solutions are always the best. Is like what can we do to help you feel more connected? Is there a small group that you can get involved in? Are there people that you can go to see or someone that you can call or connect with that will help? You to feel this sense of okayness that i'm going to be okay can we start brainstorming about you know an at-home business that you can start getting an income so that you don't have to be worried about sustaining right. your, your finances and so it's like what is it going to take for you and sometimes we have to go out to the biggest picture you know cosmic spiritual work to allow the person to feel like you know what ultimately existentially, I am okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make it through this. And whatever it takes for that person, when they make that shift, when they feel I'm going to be okay, then they're going to be up at night, night sweats. Um, The night sweats indicate that the tubercular bacteria are at work, breaking down the, um, the extra cells that were closing off the kidney collecting tubules. And they'll be up all night sweating and peeing. (laughs) And they'll probably wake up in the morning, five pounds lighter because they've resolved the conflict.
1: Right. Now it's important that they don't go to the doctor because then they'll end up on an antibiotic for a urinary tract infection. Um, but yeah, this is really, really fascinating. So, so it sounds like really you're kind of like getting in the trenches and rolling up your sleeves and, and it's like let's figure out how to solve this kind of approach. And you're not you know, following a manual of some you know psychotherapy that a person is probably not going to really do once they leave your office, right? so how invested like do do people get because you know this is very similar to the the model that i use when i work with clients that you know i just provide them information and then it's up to them to actually do anything right they have to obtain materials they have to plan out their schedule they have to make you know checklists or whatever is required um, and it sounds like it's really like that here. It, it's sort of up to the person. You're just providing information that, okay, this might help the situation or this or that. You choose which works for you and you you do it.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it is, it's very individual. I really recommend and suggest that people really understand the biological program because understanding the biology and understanding the symptom is so important because a person's reaction to their symptom can keep them stuck. And that's how you get caught in this vicious cycle where I'm retaining water. I'm feeling like I, I'm not connected to people, but now I'm feeling overweight. And so I feel like I can't go connect with people because I'm not my best self right now. And so they have to take the tools and remind themselves daily and do do the work. And so, yeah, there is uh, definitely a, a personal individual responsibility. No one is coming to save you. I can't give you a pill that's going to transform this. I can't give you, you know, something that's just going to magic, take this away. Um, It is kind of intentional and deliberate transformation of self, of how I think, what I think about, how I perceive things. And so, yeah, that's, that's my approach for sure is, you know, you have to take on these tools and make them your own.
0: What you'll find, Andy, is that all of the people who are practitioners who use German New Medicine with their clients, We all have a different skill set. Some of us are hypnotherapists. I'm a traditional naturopath. You know, others are energy workers. They're all going to bring in what they have, what they use as a tool to work with that client and hopefully, you know, refer out, hey, maybe you need to go see an herbalist just to help strengthen your body with some herbs so that it'll be easier to get through that healing phase. Mm -hmm. So we all bring in that aspect of what we know. But ideally, what we do—we're teachers. That's all we are. We're simply teaching. What's the conflict that's gone on in your life? How does it progress? What does the conflict active phase look like? What does the healing post-conflict phase look like? And how does this resolve? And we help each person get through their journey, their path.
1: Well, I really uh, believe that you know, a teacher or a pedagogue is really what physician means and uh, you know, actual word. And, and that's really the role that we should be in because, you know, it's up to each individual to take care of their own health. Right. And we right. we can't really do it successfully for them. Of course, we have, you know, the white coat allopathic model, which makes you believe that someone can do it for you if you just, you know, swallow that pill or sign the consent form so that they, you know, you can be surgerized. That that's all it takes, and they'll actually do the work, you know, for you, right? But um, and, and what really led me to this point was just observing time in, you know, after time that people who did take that pill and expected someone else to do all the work that nothing changed for them right. in their life, that's not really right. even one time, you know, with with there are a couple of discrete examples, you know, like a. If you, someone's having a seizure, usually you can stop it with medication, but they'll still have more seizures though. <laughs> right. Right. That's, so right. it's a very, very limited benefit at best.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, if somebody was having seizures, which is what we would call an epicrisis, which is halfway through the post conflict phase, it's simply the pushing out of the edema in the circle in the brain and on the organ level. So, there's an epicrisis in all biological programs. And if there's muscle involvement, especially striated muscle, we will see that epicrisis. That's what we call a heart attack, or it could be a bronchial cough. It's a coughing. Um, so right. we might see that but for a lot of programs you don't see the epicrisis. crisis it's simply the pushing out of the liquid but if somebody had multiple seizures we would work with them so they understood why they were having repeated epi crises and then once they were able to help to downgrade whatever the issue was in their life they would see their, their seizures would stop
1: well that's uh that's a fantastic uh, thing to hope for and you know <laughs> I, mean, I think most people don't even believe that that's possible.
0: Exactly, exactly. Doctor Hamer did the work that he discovered was absolutely fascinating, and it is, and it really opens your eyes to really understanding that okay, our body is much more capable than we realize. He helped people who had been in wheelchairs with major diagnosis get out of their wheelchairs and walk again. After forty years, he was able to do that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. And, you know, that's also a message that I've, you know, tried to deliver is that it's really all within us already, you know, this immense healing capacity. It's like, I mean, even if you don't even think about healing, right, where you have an insult or, or illness to overcome, but just think about what our bodies do right now in this moment, how many Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of individual chemical reactions are all going on simultaneously in concert with each other so that we can function perfectly so that I can form the words and thoughts, you know, I'm expressing right now and that are uh, all the supplies of everything are met perfectly on an ongoing real time basis it's that capacity is far beyond any computational capacity of a computers that we've invented or any human-made device and any scientist will readily acknowledge that so you know how does this happen and and of course if there's this much ability and power within our bodies then of course it can overcome any obstacle at least up to a point in, in which uh, the body is worn out, right? Which right. is exactly. inevitability for all of us. It's
0: up to a point, uh, correct. But
1: all we, if we understand how the body is overcoming these uh, difficulties and simply do things to support the natural function, right? Which is what we're all doing, You know, even all the different angles that we approach it are all fit with that paradigm. Um, then the body can simply restore itself you know, to balance. And, and that's so empowering, because it means that we don't have to rely on any outside source, um, that we can do it all ourselves.
0: And it's, it's really redefining how we use the outside sources, because there are times when surgery might be very applicable for somebody. And it's about us having the knowledge that, okay, in this case, let's see if you can find a surgeon who will help you with this. And then other times it's knowing, okay, is this drug really appropriate or is it not? Or maybe I can do an herb instead. When we learn GNM, then we have to take everything we know and reframe it as far as the two phases go. What does this person need in the phase that they're in currently? And that will look different for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: I love what you said, Andy, just about the, just the innate wisdom of the body. And that's what drew me to this work and made it make so much sense is I'm a chiropractor and in chiropractic, there's actually a very rich philosophy. Like BJ Palmer wrote volumes upon volumes, upon volumes of books about innate intelligence. And he wrote these little stories and stuff about how, you know, why would I trust the educated mind of man that's been, you know, studying and taking apart bodies for a couple of hundred years over the innate intelligence that built this body and has been perfecting this body for millions and millions of years. And that's what I love about Dr. Hamer's work is he looks at each of these biological programs as supreme intelligence. Like it is wise for the body to proliferate additional thyroid cells or lung tissue cells or digestive cells, when the organism is in danger, like that's brilliant. And here the educated mind comes in and says, this is bad, we need to cut this out. This doesn't belong here. And it's, it's respecting that the body has within it all of the wisdom and that we, we get in the way and we interfere with our intellectualizing and thinking we know things about the body and that we can remove parts. You know, it's the mechanistic model that has, you know, destroyed the human body and has made people afraid Mm -hmm. and dependent upon pharmaceuticals and outside sources and, you know, stuff injected through a needle in order for me to be okay in the world. And we're trying to mitigate this fear. Fear when really, when people wake up to the truths that we're all talking about, you'll see there's nothing to fear. I have all of the answers. My body is supremely equipped to adapt to the environment. And if I just know and understand these tools that I already have, you become a superhuman, you become someone who is indestructible you can trust the system. And that's what I love so much about, about all of the work and that all of these brilliant minds are bringing together. Cause like you said, you know, the, the nutrition, it does help when a person is deliberately doing something for their health and cleaning up their products and not using things that are toxic to their system and toxic to the environment. Everything's going to get better. And I feel like that's the way that every everything's going to head that way. I think eventually.
1: Right. Right. Cause I don't want, you know, people to get the wrong idea that we're saying, as long as you Uh, manage your conflicts, you can eat whatever you want, (laughs) right? It's important to still strive towards it. But, you you know, that's so important that when you take the care to try and improve your quality of life by, you know, eating cleaner, um, better food, for example, that it has that strong psychological effect, right? That you say, oh, I'm doing something positive for myself, Right. right. And that goes a long way to build up resilience, Um, you know, so you have the physical and the psychological resilience in, in harmony with each other. I, I feel like this might be a, a good time to wrap this up, but I, I would love if we could, you know, maybe even make this come some kind of a series where we could highlight cases or like try to solicit some questions and, and talk about how we might approach a situation or something like that, because... I'd like to learn more certainly, and I think it'd be really enlightening for the people to get that kind of exposure.
0: Right. I want to say that both of us teach German new medicine. I've been working with it clinically since 2009. I had a wellness center and worked with it. And now I just teach German new medicine worldwide, virtually or in person. Melissa as well. She's an amazing, amazing practitioner. So we teach GNM and we together developed an organization for those of us who work with German New Medicine. And right now it's called usagnm.com and we are changing the name and rebranding it for the new year. But it lists on our website pages, practitioners that use German New Medicine and they all have different backgrounds, but we're all really good people, really nice people. And we love to work with folks. So definitely check out. Check out that,
1: that, site. that sounds amazing. And, uh, you know, I also like am very interested in educating people on, you know, different ways of healing. So what, like, you know, if someone is just like casually interested or wants to learn more for their health, would it, would it be appropriate? Or do you have like pr- formal programs? Or how does it work exactly?
0: Well, we're all a little different in how we approach it. I have formal programs that I do. I have a basic course for everyone, for for lay people. And then I also have an advanced six-month course for practitioners, holistic practitioners and healthcare providers who want to learn how to implement GNM into their current existing practice. So, and Melissa, what do you have?
2: I have, uh, on my YouTube channel, I have GNM 101. That's typically where I send everyone. That's like my You know, my hour-long YouTube presentation to just get people to dip your toes in the water of GNM. And then as far as like educational, if you're interested in learning the science, I typically refer people to Andy's course. But if people are interested in learning, like how do I deconstruct this experience, I have courses and I do coaching based around that, which is trying to get a person to see where they are, what they're dealing with, what are the elements, the internal elements of this conflict? And how can I transform this experience? And so that's really where I focus my energy and attention and how to help a person to change that inner sensation of I'm not okay. I'm stuck. I'm afraid things aren't good to, I can handle this. Everything's okay to make that shift from conflict to resolution. And so that's, that's kind of what I focus my, my attention on with helping people.
1: Wow, that's fantastic! So, um, and do you, you work with people remotely? I imagine as well.
2: Yes, from all over, which is so uh,
1: awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love that too. So it sounds like you know we have great opportunities for lots of learning, both you know on the individual level and uh, even you know to integrate this into your own practice and become a GNM professional. So that's, that, that's really fantastic. And uh, you can certainly find me at, at my website, AndrewKaufmanMD.com. I'm going to be starting a new uh, webinar uh, group where I'm going to be trying to do more education with people in that format. And, um, you know, if you sign up for my newsletter, you can keep up with whatever is going on, such as exciting discussions like this one. And uh, I'll certainly announce when the next time we might be talking would be.
0: I love your newsletter. It's wonderful.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I can be reached at andylockmears.com. And I also have a newsletter. So feel free to sign up. I also do podcasting and I've done a lot of COVID podcasting and YouTube videos as well. So check those out. They're all on my website.
2: And I'm at drmelissasell.com, YouTube, Dr. Melissa Sell. You can find me there, Instagram, all the places, Telegram. <laughs> You're, you know, getting off the Facebook land.
1: Yes, like we all should be. Absolutely. That's
0: right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. This was awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really been great. Uh, You know, I feel like we're uh, old friends.
0: (laughs) I know, right? It's like we're we're on the same wavelength and it's so wonderful when we find other folks that like they get it, they get it on a big level. And that's, we're always trying to reach people who get it because a lot of people won't and that's fine. And we're always trying to reach the ones who will get it. So we're so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much.